Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we are talking ratings. Uh-oh, did somebody actually find out that nobody's listening to us? Yeah, they're probably not, but no, it's not radio ratings, it's wine ratings. N- Rick, nobody listens to wine. People barely listen to us. I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Today we're going to poke at wine ratings and the 100-point scale. We have some listener questions that might help you navigate a supermarket. We'll hear from veteran wine writer Steve Heimoff, and as usual... We will make fun of wine snobs. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we're talking wine ratings on the 100-point scale and what they mean to you. I give us three stars. There's there's no three-star scale. Uh, Fair enough, though, you know. I give us three stars. Three stars. Okay. All right. All right. Well, you won't get much of an argument, whatever those mean. (laughs) The 100-point scale and the notion of wine ratings is a bit more contentious than our three stars. So let's start with the whole idea of giving a number to a bottle of wine. Good idea? Bad idea? Yeah, I'm not sold on it. Um, I understand why people do it because there's just so many wines out there that you got to find some way of mm-hmm. classifying them all the rest. But the problem with the really, really definitive, what's the difference between an 88 and an 89-point wine? Rick, you and I judge wine competitions all over the country. There isn't a judge there who will tell you, I can consistently tell you, I can determine what's an 88 and what's an 89, and we can tell the difference every time. It's, it's an invention. It helps people a little bit, but it is taken way too seriously by way too many people, which sounds a lot like the world of wine. Yeah, it does, isn't it? Well, and you know, philosophically, there's a, a certainly an ar- a huge argument against it, which is that you don't want to boil wine down to a number. Wine is so different for everybody, even if something so simple as just something you like. Right. You know, right. and, and oddly enough, I mean, we do that with art, however. We do that with movies. We do that with television. We yeah, you do that with well, plays. Well, so sort of. Nobody goes to the Louvre and says, you know what, Mona Lisa, 100 points. No, I gave her, the an, rough, I gave the, her an 88. I couldn't s- tell if she was smiling. Well, there you go. Yeah. See, that's exactly it. Nobody listens to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and says, eh, 96 points should have had more trumpet. It's just not the way we look at art. And if you really think about wine as an expression of culture, you got to give people a little slack and say, pretty good, not so good. But when it gets down to these extremely fine differentiations, I think you're just blowing smoke. And yet, and yet, I would argue that this is all on the wine industry. Thank you, wine industry, for making it so difficult or so confusing. You know, there's the the Churchill line about democracy. It's the worst form of government except all the others. And in a way, because there's so much consumer confusion, once again, thank you, wine industry, that so many people are just looking for some kind of a hint. Do I get this wine? Okay, but why blame it on the industry? They're looking, yeah, you're right. There's so much confusion. There's so much confusion because there are 125,000 wines in the market. Let's blame the wine writers. (laughs) Hey, well, I'm going to blame you. Uh, Yeah, well, it's probably my, it is my (laughs) fault. 125,000 wines out there in the market. Yeah, no wonder yeah. people are confused. And yeah. what's the difference between, you know, Von Romanet and Romanet Conti? And the average consumer is going to look at this stuff and not have a clue. And yeah. that's understandable. Yeah, between and the 400 Napa cab is that alone, you know? Right. right. Yeah. I even understand the idea that, well, maybe we need, you know, gold, silver, bronze medals at competitions and all that. All of that just helps people find things out. To me, the only real challenge with the 100-point scale is that 
when you really look at it and talk to retailers, they will tell you that the difference between 89 points and 90 points is the difference between life and death. People yeah. won't buy 89-point wines, and they will buy 90-point wines. And, you know, if you yeah, look well, Let's stop for a second on that, because I, I want to... I just want to go very, very quickly through what some people consider their wine scale, right? 95 to 100 is a great, great wine, a classic. 90 to 94 is outstanding. 85 to 89 is a very good wine. Very good wine. Very good wine, and yet... But a lot of consumers won't buy it. Or a lot of consumers won't buy it. A lot of consumers look at 89 points and say, three stars. Yeah, yeah. And you know what that means. Yes, a lot of of people don't buy us either. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you know, it's too bad, too, because there's another piece that comes in, and this this is a part of the wine world that really is sort of sad, which is that it becomes trophy hunting, too. Right. You know, I'm, you right. and I have both talked to a lot of folks who brag about, I only drink 90-point wines, or I, right. I I just bought a bunch of 95s yesterday. Right. And I you know, always ask them, and what were they? Right. And they can't remember. Yeah. Or they what they remember. taste like. Yeah. 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 But, you know, there's another thing about wine, and it's sort of unfortunate, and I think it has a lot to do with sort of this the general confusion, like you said, so many wines, so many grapes, so many regions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But people, I think, worry about getting taken by wine more than they do anything other than maybe a used car. Well, it's funny, though. You wrote about television. You're a television critic. You've written about entertainment. You used scales to describe what you were seeing there. But did you use a 100-point scale? What did you use? We, we, we used the Richter scale. The Richter scale. The Richter, <laughs> Richter scale. scale. Yeah, it was the Richter. Three stars for everything. Huh? Yeah, it was, um, what did we do? Uh, up to five stars. But it yeah. was But it was never just that. In fact, we only did that with Fall Preview. I, You know, when I wrote it, a review to show we didn't put a number on it. We just I just reviewed right. it, but I was very right. clear right up front who might like it and who might not. Sure, and which, I, is, which is key. And and to be fair to the publications that use the hundred point scale, and these days it's a lot of them. All of them tell you don't just look at the number. Also read the description because the description will tell you way more about the wine than the numerical score. The problem is consumers looking at a wall full of descriptions, mm. and you and I will make fun of descriptions later in this show like we always do. And they're all, all useless. And they're all useless. Yeah. Then what do you got to go on? Well, right. this one's got 88 and the other one's got 90. I'm going with the 90. Yeah, yeah, it is true. And the thing, too, is there is this big brouhaha inside the wine world about it. Some of it Isn't is very Isn't that in justified. the beer world, the brouhaha? That's, they have a different kind of a brouhaha. Okay, this is good. an OU. Sorry. Yeah. No puns allowed. Yes. No puns allowed. That's one of our rules Sorry. Sure. Couldn't help. That uh, one was just looking yeah. for help. But and you know, there's a group out there called Score Revolution. It's one of the many, and and it's you know, well-meaning group. And unfortunately, in a way um, that I agree with them, and yet it sort of forgets that where most consumers live, which is at the beginner to intermediate stage of, right. of understanding wine, and right. they want. Which is which is why we're so good at talking to consumers. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Because they know they're smarter than us, but we, we sound like beginners. Um, you know, and they they make a really good point about that that wine and writing about wine should be about sort of sharing the human experience. But they want us. They want writers to discuss tannins and acids, and unfortunately, for most people, that is is. It's gibberish, and and so right. you, where do you? Where else do you do it? How else do you do it? You know, it's funny. Um, I, we, my wife and I love hiking, and a good hiking guide will take you out in the mountains or take you down into the canyon and tell you all sorts of stuff as you walk along. That really is what a a good wine critic should do, and it really doesn't have to do with hiking down into the Grand Canyon and saying, you know. 
It's an 89-point hike today because there's a little high overcast and there's a little... You know, and, and you're smelling cherries, berries, and cranberries. And, well, yeah. or and you're smelling donkey manure yeah. um, down in the Grand Canyon. Well, but, you smell donkey manure when you read a lot of wine critics, well, too. But in, in fact, you do. Yes. <laughs> but to me, to me, that wine critic ought to be someone who can serve as that guide, take you somewhere, show you something. But the story is is way more interesting than just giving it ratings or points and all the rest. And again, same thing with a Yelp review. You know, you read the Yelp review and what the person says is almost more helpful than the score. They give it five stars because it's a great place to pick up hot guys. And you and I look at that and think, you know, that's probably not where we want to take our wives for dinner. You no, know, it's where I want to go to get picked up. As long as I'm no, not it says pick a great place for hot, hot guys. guys. Oh, 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 I didn't catch that part. You're right. Yeah. Okay, well, never mind then. <laughs> um, all right, we will uh, talk more about ratings in the second half of the show. We actually have some thoughts for some critics. Next up, we'll take some questions, and uh, the answers might help you navigate a supermarket wine aisle or two, even without ratings. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. It's time to open the mailbag and take questions from listeners. If you'd like to ask a question that we can answer on the show, go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Look for us on iTunes, and you can subscribe with just one little click. If you're new to us, by the way, uh, you may wonder why we are qualified to answer questions. We certainly wonder. Uh, you wouldn't be the first. But I will tell you that Paul is a respected industry pro, or he was until he started hanging around me. He answers questions on allexperts.com. He teaches at Napa Valley College and around the world. And Rick, a best-telling New York Times author and longtime journalist, wine commentator for Capital Public Radio. The lovely folks who let us use their studios. That's absolutely right. So between the two of us, we've got to have one or two good ideas. Or at least one or two good answers on and That's so right. We'll try to give you a couple. So these are some supermarket questions I saved up so we had enough. The first cool. one comes from Julie DaCosta in Modesto. She says, I always see these great wines in my supermarket name removed so we don't get sued. Oh, aren't you smart. <laughs> yes. She says, I recognize some of them and they seem like killer deals. Are they too good to be true? What am I missing? I suspect some form of trickeriness. I think what she's talking about is when the wine is marked down from fourteen ninety nine to three ninety nine, or so it yep. seems to be. Yep. Well, there are a couple of possible answers. One of them is check the vintage dates, and you may discover that the wine was listed at fourteen ninety nine when it was released in nineteen ninety three. But now in twenty fifteen, it's getting a little old, and you better move that stuff along. So part of it could just be it's old wine they're clearing out. The other possibility, though, is that the winery. Frequently, wineries make volume discounts to large clients, large customers. So if they, if they were to sell a huge amount of wine to a big supermarket chain, they might sell it at a lower price. And then that chain, as a way of, of, of garnering a larger segment of the market, would reduce costs as well. Yeah, and, and those those are right. And those are often um, the big displays. You know, right. sort of nice. Uh, the, That's this, right. The displays, and I think maybe this is what you're talking about, Julie, uh, um, are those ones like on the end of the aisle where there's on a shelf and there's a bunch of really well-recognized names of wine but they seem to be way underpriced. And those are the ones, like Paul said, that are way too old, particularly the whites, because the whites are Yeah, the whites are the ones you got to worry about. And, of course, the the last place to look for bargains is in that shopping cart right near the door where every bottle is $2 and you can take anything you want. And they, frankly, they don't care if you pay for them. Just take those bottles out of the store because they've been with us way too long. Although I will say this. I was uh, at the end of summer last year at my local supermarket name removed, so I won't get sued. 
And um, they had a bin, and it was a handwritten sign that said State Fair Wines. Now, as you know, last year I was yes. the chief judge for State Fair right. Commercial you're, Wine Competition. You're still working with him. I recognized that those happened to be the best of show white. Wow. The best uh, Riesling in California. And the best Sauvignon Blanc in California. Uh-huh. They, and you just wheeled that shopping cart I, right out the I bought, door. I bought a case of them, actually, of what I did. You know, but yeah. they, they, and I tried to find a manager to tell them what they have. I'm sure what happened was they were left over from something. Tried to tell a manager, and the oldest person in the store running the place, I think, was 16. So right. I, I, I kind of <laughs> gave up. Well, every wine lover has a store about walking into a wine shop or something else and looking at the list or looking at the shelves and saying, holy mackerel, they don't know what they've got here. Um, I remember Andre Chelyshev, the great winemaker from Beaulieu Vineyards, tells a story about grabbing a bottle of what he considered one of the greatest wines he ever made, and he was marching up to the store manager to complain that it was hideously underpriced. <laughs> and his wife grabbed him by the arm and said, Andre, buy it first, <laughs> then tell him. Yes, yes. We have another question in that very same vein. This is from Robert Hyde in Sacramento, and he's much more specific on those tags. And what he says is, it seems like every wine at supermarket name removed, so we don't get sued, yep. has a tag that says it used to cost like twenty one ninety nine, but is on sale for nine ninety nine. It seems like they're always there and they don't change. Right? Is that higher price even real? Are they just making it up? Well, I happen to know about this because I have talked to some of my supermarket friends, and uh, the answer is, in many cases, they are just making it up. The, the problem is sometimes they're not. But often, if you've got that where the wine was initially priced at something massively higher, and they're just in the main, you know, not on a special display, those tags in the aisles, I think is what he's talking about, those are usually the, a price that they would never actually have charged for the wine right. initially. doesn't right. mean the wine's not on sale. It's just that the original price is not as high. Right. And, and one of the things that wineries do pretty consistently is when they release a wine, remember that they're releasing wine, many wineries at least, if they're in national distribution, this wine is going to be sold in New York, Florida, Chicago, Texas, and they provide right. to everybody what is called the SRP, the Suggested Retail Price. And what you're basically saying is no matter where it goes, even after you pay for shipping, even after you pay distributor commissions, even after you pay the retailer markup and all the rest, you can still sell this wine at $22 and make a profit. Mm-hmm. Well, what that means is they list that as their suggested retail price. Now, somebody who buys direct from the winery, somebody who buys a large volume of wine direct from the winery, they're getting it a lot cheaper yeah. than some mom-and-pop store in upstate New York. And as a result, they can say, sure, suggested retail price, $22. I'm selling it for 13 because you know what? I didn't pay that much for it. Right, right, right. You know, and, uh, and one other thing on that, Robert, and I, I did a story on this once where I stocked supermarket. I lurked in supermarket aisles. Uh, more than I usually do, actually. I was going to say, you stock supermarket aisles sometimes, <laughs> yes, too, as a yes, kid, didn't I, you? Yes, I did. Uh, well, th- and then I did that, too. Um, the uh, I hung around supermarket, and I watched people make wine decisions. And then, and uh, you know, it was not somebody walked in, looked, knew what they were looking for, and grabbed the wine, but somebody who kind of stared. Right. And you've seen that, or people it stare. It is a great way to pick up people of the opposite sex, well, by yeah, the way. Yes. Luck- luckily, I am both harmless and married, so I wasn't right. trying to do that. But, uh, uh, and it, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me 
me of remember those paintings that that you know had dots, and if you stared at it long enough, you see a dolphin. <laughs> you would hopefully or a, a see spaceship. a pattern appear. Yeah. Well, it's like people would stare at it yeah. as if somehow something would t- totally speak to them, and then what I would I would watch them stare and stare and stare, and then pick out a wine, and then I'd ask them why they chose it. Right. And first, I'd identify myself and show my press card, and after they hit me with their purse a couple times, um, those right. are the guys. And uh, <laughs> is they'd say usually it was because it was marked down the most from the from, highest price. From what it was before, right. So so if the, the wine was $17, right. they thought they were getting the best deal. So Robert and right. anybody else, don't use that top price as your judge of whether the wine's any good. Um, well, it, in it, fact, if there's a rule in wine in general, it's don't use price as a overall as a as a standard measurement because there are expensive wines that you won't like and there are inexpensive wines that you'll love and please don't decide that you're only buying wines at a certain price because those are the good ones. Yeah, yeah. And the other the other lesson there is if you see a short bald but adorable guy, that would be me, standing in the aisle taking notes, uh, don't hit him with your purse. Um, and then we have one more from Paula Driscoll in Pasadena. Uh-huh. And, and Paula says there are so many wines in supermarket name removed so we don't get sued. Oh, this one's actually okay. I think I just want to get the same wine that I like, but it makes me feel like, I don't know, I'm missing out or committing some faux pas because I keep getting the same wine. Can I, can't I? I just get my wine? Yes. Yes. If you have a wine you like and you want to drink it, then you should just go out and drink it over and over again, Paula. That is absolutely true. Now, if you're having friends over, you know, it may be a little bit like when my, my wife, who is a chef, has has we have guests over for dinner. She doesn't want to serve them the same meal every time. She wants to give them something different. But if it's you, if it's buying for you and you like the wine, buy it, drink it, be happy, and don't feel like you've got to try anything new until you wake up one morning and say... You know, that short little bald guy next to me in bed, not all that great a deal. Let me, I think I'm going to go see what else I can find out there in the market. I think my wife has had that thought more than once. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's true. And, you know, uh, I do need to quote him. Jeff Siegel calls himself the wine curmudgeon. Curmudgeon. Yeah, and he calls it the great wall of wine and says it's the Rubik's Cube. And I love the mixed metaphor. It's exactly right. It is is absolutely unfathomable. And the truth of it is it's even unfathomable for us who know the business because there's so many wines. Yep. And and how do you know the, the differences between these things? And there is nothing, nothing wrong with drinking wines that you like. And, and on the other hand, there's nothing wrong with going in there and buying three or four bottles of different stuff and just saying, you know what, yeah. maybe one of them isn't going to be good. Maybe one of them is going to be spectacular. But let's just go figure out what's out there and have some fun and explore. An- that's even more fun than drinking the same thing every night. Another way to do it. We have one more question. This is from Jane. This is not a supermarket-related wine, so we don't have to edit out any supermarket names. This is okay, from Jane good. Sue in San San Francisco. She says, someone told me I have an old world palate. Was he making fun of my age or does that actually mean something? Oh, good for her. Yeah. Actually, yeah. That's a, that does mean yeah. something. And well, technically, yeah. Old world wines generally have a little more acidity, a little more structure, and a little less fruit mm-hmm. than new world wines. So if Jane has an old world palate, it means that she would probably prefer wines from the old world as opposed to wines from the new world. It's neither good nor bad, but it gives her, if that person is accurate, it gives Jane a good idea of where she should start looking for the next wine she's going to buy and what she might like to try next. 
Absolutely. And, you know, that's kind of what our goal is in life, or the wine life in general, is, is to sort of, you know, help get help identifying our palates. Uh, our goal in life is to get help. Yeah, well, that's my, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think I think your goal is to get me help, and I've been trying to get you help for a very long time, Paul. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's true is that, you know, we all, so many people would like to be able to define their palates so that when they go to a place that they don't really know the wine, they can help with right. a description. So, right. So, if Jane, if that's yep. true, if you if you tend to like wines that are a little brighter and, and a little less big and fruity, yep. um, then you do have an old world palate. If you t- and and that's a so that's something you could tell a, a sommelier. sommelier. Yep. Exactly. You yep. can walk into a restaurant now and say, "I've been told I have an old world palate. What do you have that might that I might like in a white wine?" And that sommelier has already got a list of wines he can say or she can say, "Oh boy." Try yeah. these. And, and yeah, so that's a good thing. And um, by the way, I'm sure you are just completely young. <laughs> just like us. <laughs> okay. Speak for yourself. <laughs> that's it for now for questions. We'll have more in this second half of the show. If you'd like to ask us a question that we can answer on the show or really off, but we're only Actually, if you answer. just have a question we can answer, that would be yeah, great. Yeah, we would like that. And go to rickandpaulwine.com. That's all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And don't forget, you can find us on iTunes with a simple click. Coming up, some bad wine writing from people who really ought to know better. We will be right back. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Ah, there they are, those restrained dulcet tones one more time, which means it's time for our regular attempt to bring you uh, actually an unexplainable phenomenon, which is how people make money writing about wine sometimes the way they write. Okay, Paul, what's your really horrible wine writing example today? Well, actually, I have to admit, Rick, I kind of like this one. Okay. It is a, it's just an absolute over-the-top description. Get this, an absolutely gorgeous bottle of Crimson Love. This is one you're going to want to get intimate with. Blackberry cobbler, red plums, purple flowers, spiced licorice, dark chocolate, and dusty tannins transport you into a hallucinatory state of sheer taste decadence. A nice kiss of wood and a supple finish deliver a purity that will send your taste buds into a realm of hedonistic ecstasy. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm not sure I know what that wine would taste like, but I, I'm having really a lot you of fun. You want a second if, bottle. I'm in front of a black light poster, I think, is what I'm doing. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a good one. I yeah, like that. Yeah. Uh, Although I do wonder what purple flowers smell like. Purple flowers aren't purple. I well, mean, I, you know, anyway. and if the wine really doing anything hallucinatory, it may not be legal. Yeah, not too. I'm just saying. What do you have got? Mine is from a a major national newspaper writer, and um, this is a writer who tends to uh, confuse the notion of simplicity and inability to actually communicate the word simplicity, uh, which I'm just... I was going to say, that sounds like us. We're simple and we can't talk about it. Yes, yes. Well, this is... um, I, I love this. This is the writer. Wine doesn't have to be complicated. In the Rhone Valley, I always look for a calcareous soil and altitude. When a can of vintage with a high number of degree growing days and an acceptable bricks, pH levels can also be a cue. <laughs> <laughs> there are some good villages and Appalachians to look for in uh, Bombe de Venise, Vaquera, Rasteau, and Liroc. 
uh, which are villages in their own. Now, so here's my point. Really? Doesn't have to be complicated. Doesn't have but to be complicated. You better understand geology, <laughs> climatology, organic chemistry. Degree growing, growing days, which most people have no idea, which means it's the the uh, the range at which. I thought it was, ad- was how many years it took you to get your college yes, degree. Yes, you were growing into your degree. It's it's basically good days for growing sunny wines. Days. Yeah, sunny, yeah, and, and acceptable bricks, which wow. is whose idea. pH levels can also be a cue because you can easily learn those by looking at a bottle of wine. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, and then, wow. he goes, then he goes on to name some villages that m- many people have never heard of. And it's, please, please, please. This is sort of our I point. I like mine better. Yeah, it, well, yours was way more fun. But this kind of is the point so often, which is with so many wine writers are so intimate with their subjects. Mine certainly was. And Yes, well, especially <laughs> intimate with the subject. And they forget, they forget that other people don't know it the way they do and have no idea what well, color character Here's the funny is. part. Here's the funny part is when you actually talk to people who know what this stuff means, when you start talking about pH level, it's fun to hear an organic chemist come back to a wine writer and say, so what does that have to do with the ionization of hydrogen? Yes. <laughs> and the wine writer suddenly says, what do you mean? He says, well, that's what pH is. Ah, oh, I, um, ah, uh, ah. Uh. Yeah. Yes. Right. Let's, well, and, and I love the fact that it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be complicated. Just like us. <laughs> You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Don't forget, you can find us on iTunes and subscribe for free with just a click. When we come back, we'll have more on the 100-point scale and hear what some critics have to say. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and we are getting back to talking about the 100-point scale, or in our case, three stars. And we thought we'd let you hear what some big-name people have to say about it. Yeah, clearly not us if they're big-name people. Yes, exactly right. You know, there is one issue, by the way, is that stores often post these um, these big names or these reviews. And, you know, I'd say about 90% of the, their customers have no idea who those people are. Right. So, or, or, whether, or what those people like what, in terms of exactly. wine. Exactly. So that's right. And that's really always the cue, whether it, with any kind of critic, is to, is to know something about their, their palates and their styles, which then the reviews can actually help you a little bit, but the numbers don't. Yeah. So very quickly, I'm going to take you through a couple... One from Robert Parker, one of the most august uh, and probably the guy that made the 100-point scale famous and takes did. credit for it, certainly. Yep. Yep. Um, and this is him saying, people say, well, you can't possibly score the wine the same thing every time. And I say, of course I can't. But I'd like to think, and I have done enough blind tastings, that if I stay within two or three points, then I have a consistent palate. See, he says that's a useful guide, but the problem is if it's within two or three points and it's 89 to 91, right. it's a or huge Or 87 difference. to 90, and most consumers right. think that. You know, what's funny is when I judge at the Concours Mundial, they, they give this rating system where they, they give you the same wine twice in the same flight every day so that they're checking to see that you're consistent. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there are – I tasted next to a judge who literally gave the same wine – Point seventeen points difference between in the same flight. Oh yeah, seventeen it's, oh, yeah, point different yeah. rating. So she had no idea of how to be consistent. On the other hand, if I were a judge and wanted to be consistent, I would just give everything eighty-eight points. Right, right there, and you're then, safe. And Go then for the you know safe, what? Right? I am consistent. Yeah, yeah. What is interesting is 
everyone who argues in favor of this scale has a standard answer about would you be willing to do this blind in front of an audience? And that standard answer is not on your life. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, this is uh, from English writer Hugh Johnson, a guy you and I both like. Oh, very much. And a wonderful writer. If you, if you buy one book about wine in your life, buy Hugh Johnson's World Atlas of Wine. It's the best book on wine Yes, it is a great way. You can thumb through it and learn about wines. And if you buy a bottle of wine, you can yep. sort of look it up. He's, and it's great. And, and gosh, he writes beautifully. And, well, you're going to say that because you like that, the fact that he's agreeing with you. This is what he says. <laughs> Who would think of trying to rate a Manet or a Monet or a Hemingway and Fitzgerald, he wrote, in his book, Wine, A Life Uncorked. Yep. So he's exactly that, making that argument about That's ratings right. are dangerous. Uh, and Jamie Good is a wine writer in London, and he has a really interesting point, and I completely agree with him. Uh, so he is, must be just crazy. He is. This, I think he was hit by a car and, <laughs> at, at an early the top age. of his head or That's something. Right. Yeah. No, this is. He's right, and this is another of the issues. The 100 point scale shouldn't be a problem because it's a good enough system. The mm-hmm. problem is the compression at the higher end. The competition among critical voices has had an escalating effect on scores. That 85 to 100 of 20 years ago has become a 90 to 100 of today. Mm -hmm. You want to be the critic whose score is cited, so it's very hard to resist the pressure to score highly. Well, and one of the things we've seen over the years is, A, certainly wines are getting better. But, you know, all of this gets back to the, you know, the Russian gymnastics judges at the Olympics. You start liking one thing more than the other. You give them a few more points. And pretty soon, you, you know, you don't dare give the first wine you taste 100 points because then what do you give the next one that you like even better? There's just a lot of human error involved in this yeah. and a lot of prejudice, ultimately, that it's so much more helpful if you could give us good words. And, of course, we've also seen yes. that wine critics can't do that either. So no wonder there's so many people trying to do this. The <laughs> yeah. field is wide open. And, you know, there's a thing, and, and there's a lot of really well-meaning, very good critics out there. Mm-hmm. I, we don't mean yes. to be picking on them, but as a, a guy who spent a lot of time in the critical world, uh, not in wine, but in Hollywood, one of the things that we used to see consistently, there was a, there was a handful of critics not particularly the good ones who are often quoted. And by the way, if you're reading reviews of movies and TV shows, yes. and you see them on the DVD boxes, yes. often it is these yes. guys. It's from the Hollywood Cruncher or something. Yes. And what happens is that they are looking to get themselves into the review that the studio cites. And right. so what they do is they write these, you know, this f- absolutely fantastical phrases in the middle that they That's know. Right. They're, gonna get, it's, they're creating their own brand. Yeah. And then what ends up happening, and, and I have yet to see wine companies do much of this, which is a nice thing, is that they end up, the studios end up quote shopping. Well, they right. will call you. I have gotten that phone call. Sure. Um, and said, would you say something for us? Would you please say something nice about our show? And I could tell them, look, there are some shows that I've written nice things about. And I said, well, I wrote something very nice about it. The review ran three weeks ago. Feel right. free to take anything you'd like. Right. But, but the right. problem is, is some, some, some critics would love to be that. And the reason is, is because like anything else, it's, you know what it's like? It's like academia. The reason why the fights are so bitter because the stakes are so stakes small. Stakes are so small. People That's are just right. looking for. You well, know, in these days uh, of bloggers, you've got people who who just literally decide to launch a blog just because they want to launch a blog, and they're suddenly getting quoted by wineries because mm-hmm. they gave their. Uh, wasn't there a scandal a few years ago about one of the big movie houses actually um, inventing critics oh, yeah. Oh, that, yeah. that was, said wonderful things? That no. hasn't happened yet in wine, but it will. It will. It, it will. will. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. In fact, Rick. We could do. We this. should do that. We could be yeah. hundred points. Yeah. You send us your wine, 
and and we will give it exactly the same number of points as dollar bills are attached to the bottle. So you want a hundred point wine, hundred bucks. I think we're selling ourselves cheap. Well, well, we new? are. Yeah, that's new. Right. Good. Very good point. <laughs> All right. Um, and one more. I talked with wine writer Steve Hymoff about his thoughts. Uh, Steve's a long time was a long time critic for wine enthusiasts, and just right. re- recently went to work for Kendall Jackson. So in a way, he's sort of got an objective view of it. Uh, and basically, he's agreed with us. Consumer loves scores, but philosophically, you hate to reduce any wine to a number, and there may not be a better system. When we talked, I asked him, "What are other ways for consumers to get help deciding on wines?" You know, there are different kinds of consumers, Rick. You know, there's not just one consumer. So there's that person out there who maybe buys the occasional bottle of wine at the Safeway, and that's one person. And then there's a more serious, motivated person. And for that second kind, I've always said, I think the best thing you can do is have a relationship with a merchant. Right. Find, in, find somebody somewhere. In right. your neighborhood. Right. And, and hopefully, you know, where, where you live, there's, there's at least one good store. I'm lucky enough to live in a big city. There's a lot of good stores. If I was a normal wine consumer, I would be shopping at Paul Marcus or someplace like that. And they would understand my budget. They would know me. Right. They would know my food that I'm having, and they would be able to make those. You're making it sound because these are the things that Paul and I always talk about. So yeah, make have a relationship. Let them know your budget. Let them know what you what kind of stuff you like. Yeah. you go from there. I also yeah. think you know I'm a magazine guy. I mean, I think that there's a ton of magazines and and websites out there, and if you find one that you trust and their critics resonate with your taste, then you know whether it's enthusiast or spectator or food and wine or Whatever it is, I mean, those are good guides to to help us through the wall of wine that can be so confusing. You know, there's another thing about the point system too. Is there's a certain um, there's a certain element of consumer. The wine snob that we always make fun of, mm-hmm. which is that it's almost trophy hunting. It's bragging. This is yeah. a ninety-two point wine. I I don't buy anything. I, you've heard that phrase, right? I don't totally. buy anything under ninety points. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, do we just give up on them? No. I mean, they're entitled if that's what they want to do. It's a free country and, <laughs> and, and 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 live in their own live in their own hell that they make for themselves. Well, see, right? that's I mean, that's your characterization. I'm going to be a little kinder. Oh, well, you're a nicer guy than, than I. you. I just think that you know you have to allow people to make these decisions in a way that's comfortable for them and far be it for me to tell somebody you know you should buy wine my way and not your way no because really what you should do is buy wine our way paul my way yes Rick. Yeah. not even our way not my way. way well okay fine that's how we're gonna do it that's how we're gonna do it well and steve makes that point that you and i make a lot which is you know the good news about wine is going back to one of those questions in the first half of the show about if there's something you like, there's no crime in buying wines that you like. That's right. And the nice thing is that there are people out there and probably the easiest way, and no offense to the critics, but there, you know, that you can have a conversation with somebody at a wine store near your house, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. if it's the supermarket that has a wine steward in there and, and uh, you know, those sorts of stores are around. And just tell them the wine that you liked. And remember, right. you know, my theory is always take pictures of wines that you like and wines you don't like. Right. Pull them up on your phone. Make sure you know the difference. And make sure you remember. Yeah, keep them separately. Um, and, yeah. and say, I like this and I didn't like this, and you'll get some help. Yep, good idea. You are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. When we come back, more questions from listeners, and we have one more that might be some help in a supermarket. And by the way, next week, that person asking the question could be you. Stay with us.
You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We're going back to our mailbag, and by the way, if you'd like to ask us a question, we will give it a shot, and we'll give you credit anyway for stumping us, which is not hard. That's right. <laughs> Go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And as always, you can find us on iTunes, too, and you can subscribe for free with just one little click. Our first question, and this is another supermarket question, is from Rachel Naylor in Redwood City. Mm. There are always big displays, one or two kinds of wine at my supermarket name removed so we don't get sued. Okay, good. And it's in the meat department or at the front of the store. Sure. Why are they there? Are they better than others or cheaper or is supermarket name removed so we don't get sued? Just trying to dump them. Actually, this is every wine marketer's dream. You know, the place you want your wine. Remember that wall of wine in the supermarket? Remember the customer walking in there, staring at that wall, and going into sort of a zen-like trance and realizing that until one of the bottles I think actually... it's an hallucinatory like Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's horribly complicated, but imagine Fourth of July weekend. It's barbecue, and right next to the meat department, right. right next to the ground meat, right next to the hamburger buns, is the Sutter Home White Zinfandel Build a Better Hamburger display, and stacks and stacks of that wine and you don't think they sell a ton of wine that way this is it's called it's called cross promotion and what it is is a winery that comes to the store and says because of a certain event coming up or because of a kind of recipe we're giving away on the bottle or whatever else we want you to take our wine out of that main shelf where it gets confused with everybody else we want you to stick it right here by the ingredients people need right next to the turkey on Thanksgiving and we'll give you an extra volume discount to stack right. the wine there and right. you know what it's not a bad way to find out what wine goes with what food because they stack it right next to it that way. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the folks from Barefoot in my last book um, talked a lot about that. You know, for lots of folks who are shopping, imagine, for example, a Tuesday evening, um, a mom is coming home from work or maybe has uh, gathered the kids from school and is coming home from work and, frankly, doesn't want to go down the wine aisle where there's all that glass and a couple of eight-year-olds and a shopping cart. And and so this is another, it's a way, you know, if people don't have to go into the wine aisle and feel feel hallucinating or hallucinatory or or lost or have their kids yep. pulling stuff off. So many, many wineries try to get there. It's generally not going to be the little guys because they can't afford to be there. Right. So right. it's often it the big guys. takes some sort of a plan to do that. Right. But, it's but really it doesn't make it bad wine. Because this does tie right back to our discussion earlier about the 100-point scale because mm-hmm. all of this is ultimately a way to make wine simpler because that wall is confusing as heck to people. That list of 75 Chardonnays stacked there on the on the wall, that's too confusing. You walk over where they're selling the salmon from British Columbia, and there's a bottle of Chardonnay that's stacked right next to the salmon, and it doesn't have to be complicated. And you know what? We're not talking about calcareous soils, pH, or anything else. We're just talking about <laughs> yes. salmon, Chardonnay, yum. Yeah, you know, you get the pH of the salmon to batch the pH <laughs> of the Chardonnay. You know, there is one caveat there, by the way, from a, a show we did about a month ago, and you and I have talked about this in the past, too. If the wine is sitting out there in clear glass, yes, there was a study, yep. but lots of folks have talked about it, is if it's in clear glass and it's sitting out there, it's that fluorescent light in supermarkets that actually, actually damages it, takes some snap yep. out of the wine. Yep. So if that's the case, don't get that one. If you really wanted to get a Sauvignon Blanc, get one. Even if you like that Sauvignon Blanc, which might be on sale, that's the one you go into the wine aisle and get it, reach behind and get well, it. Well, or dig in further into the box, get and, one yeah, that's or get, down yeah. in the box. But that if yep. it's but if it's a red wine or a deeply colored box, don't worry about it. Yep. And it and it'll save you a little bit of work. Yep. Okay, another one comes from Pat Eady in Sacramento. Pat has asked us a question before. 
He says, for lots of people, there seems to be... This is a good question because it's really a basic. I, I know D- Pat, actually. I, and, and he Pat is okay. a... Uh, the only he, good questions we get are the ones we know the answers it's, to. It's sort of true. But Pat is, uh, is a beer drinker who does drink wine because that's a dinner. I know the guy. He's a good guy. For lots of people, there seems to be so many kinds of wines and just small differences. Does it matter which one is more something or other? Can't I just like it? Which, what he's basically saying is, do I have to be able to distinguish those differences in the wine? Can I just remember that I like that wine? You can just remember that you like that wine and you can just drink that wine. Where those differences, and let's be fair, even... Even sophisticated tasters have variances in their palate from day to day and all the rest. You and I have had that experience of tasting a wine and saying, hmm, tastes like this today. And we had it for dinner, and it was great. And then two days later, we're tasting the same wine in a comparative tasting. We think, huh, that's funny. I had that wine the other night yeah. for dinner, yeah. and I'm a little surprised it didn't sh- – as what we say in the business – where what we should say is, we have no idea. What we actually say <laughs> yes. is, hmm, the wine isn't showing well <clears throat> yes, today. Yes, that's it. That's the phrase. It's, the wine's not showing well. You right. know, it's, uh, yeah, which means we're not tasting well, which, which means, means we're knuckleheads. completely yes. missed the point so, on this uh, one. I blame the wine. I always blame the wine. <laughs> so, But, Pat, you're right. And, and there, this another thing, and this is, um, it's a very real thing for many wine drinkers, is that the, the differences in the wines are small. Right. And so that's right. okay. It's okay. Right. You don't have to be able to d- disti- distinguish them. It's not it's not on you. So if you like a wine you like, like it. And in, uh, and as we said earlier, now that you know that you like that, that can, right. you can use that maybe as a guide to find another one yep. that might be a little different. I mean, and it's same as music. Right. You know, listen, there are different people who do covers of different songs, and you think, well, there are relatively small nuances, but maybe I like one more than the other. But the truth is, I really like the song in general, and I like all of them. Or... I don't like any of the other versions because the only ones I like are the things sung by this particular singer. But people in America, when we talk about music, they don't tie themselves into knots. You start talking about wine and all of a sudden, oh, you got to understand and know all this stuff. No, you don't. You just have to pick the stuff you like and go for it. Yeah, I I never liked the music in the elevator. No? The wine in the elevator is very good. The wine in the yeah, elevator. They, they, boy, that's a knock, <laughs> knockout wine there. All right. And so, so, Pat, don't sweat it. Uh, and, and another question comes from Kathy Shea in Newark. And that is in the uh, San Francisco East Bay, East not Bay, in, sure. not New Jersey. Yep. Uh, when I started drinking wine out of a glass, she makes the point. I yeah, was well, told. Well, see, Rick, <laughs> you should try that sometime. I, I'm, you know, I got to call her and, and see how to do that. I was told to hold the wine glass by the base. Yes. Uh, now the trendy retailers like Pottery Barn and Williams Sonoma push those wine tumblers that don't have bases. So what's up right. with that? Well, what's up with that is if you watch Desperate Housewives, they're grabbing the glass by the bowl and they're slugging down wine two or three swallows at a time. The reason you hold a wine glass by the base is because the heat of your hand, if you sit there and hold the glass for 20 minutes, the heat of your hand actually warms up the wine and it's not the right temperature anymore. But if you're, the truth is, if you're resting the wine on the table, you pick the glass up, you drink it, you put the glass right back down again, doesn't really make any difference. And again, Rick, going back to your question, which is how can you drink as much wine as quickly as possible? Actually, <laughs> that is my question. Leave the stem out of it. Yes. Just grab the whole bowl, uh, yeah. or in your case, just the bottle, I use and both start hands. and yeah, just start hands. pouring yeah. it down yeah. your throat because yeah. that's what it's for. Well, and and. Kathy brings up. I think what she meant actually was uh, by the stem uh, or the um, the, the not stem. the base, but the stem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah stem. She's a stem, right? Yeah. Because um, yeah, that's uh, the um, now. I'm going to suggest, and when I when I do occasionally do wine events, I do I do these after dinner speeches where I do wine comedy, which is me trying to be serious, <laughs> which is explain you talking things. About but wine. They're laughing at me. Way. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
But one of the things that I say is this is how you can tell a wine snob. And one of them is, is the person, it's always, and it's always a guy, the guy holding it by the base the whole time. Now, now and right. then you not do. Not even the stem. But not the stem, but the, the base. And, he's, right. and usually he's wearing an ascot. Uh, the, and, an ascot. An ascot, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. He's walking around holding it by the base. And I say what you do with that guy, you know, you could do one of two things. You can say, wow, look how cool you hold that wine glass. But I think actually the better thing to do is slightly jostle him because he's going to spill his wine. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you do not. So th- that is um, thing. You know, and actually the with wine glasses, we've talked about wine glasses um, a lot. And, and people ask us uh, often is there a best glass? Well, I say the larger the better, so you can pour as much wine in. No, <laughs> there um, but there you go, fish bowls. Yeah, the, you know there are. There's a handful of kinds, and it's it's another one of those things not to sweat. However, I have to say this: um, I'm fighting a bit of a cold, and last night um, I opened a bottle of Pinot that we like. Yep. And I, you know, it's sort of a dumb idea when you have a cold. Right. And um, but I thought, well, this will be an interesting test. So I poured it into a couple of burgundy glasses, which is the big wide the bowls, big open and they're very glasses, pretty right? and they're fun to drink it. Yeah. And I poured it, poured it into a slightly smaller glass. It was like a small, you know, what we would consider your standard wine glass. Right. And and I have to say, it tasted so much better in the burgundy glass. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So you was know, was that the second bottle or the third? The thing? third. The so, third. Yeah. Okay. So that must be why. Yeah, um, that's probably at the second. No, sec- but but that big that big glass actually does does mean something. You know, sometimes and so sometimes the shape of the glass matters. Right, um, but in the uh, and and you're inter- making it way too complicated. Yeah, yeah, you pour yeah. it into a glass, you drink it. It's delicious. It's fine. Yeah, you could do that. There's there always you that. Go. That's yeah. what I say. All right. Well, so Kathy, don't sweat it. Um, although the the thing is, on that cold the cold glass, just chug that down so it doesn't get warm. Well, that's, that's it. I mean, th- those glasses are great for picnics when you're at the beach and you can't get the glass to stand up in the sand. Although I've always suggested that the perfect glass for that is the one that you were holding by the base when Rick came by and jostled you, and you actually dropped it and it broke part of the stem off. You now you take those to the beach, you yeah. stick that stem down into the sand, and you have the perfect picnic wine glass. Actually, when I jostle that guy, he usually tries to stab me with it. So that's a, <laughs> we'll, we'll let that one go. We are closing out the mailbag. We are moving on. If you'd like to ask us a question about wine or anything, go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And as always, you can find us on iTunes. Coming up, we have a food and wine pairing for you. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and we are doing our weekly food pairing. And how did we pick the food this time, Rick? Uh, I like it. You like it? Yes. Okay. Well, yes. there you go. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's also, it, it can be a slightly difficult pairing, um, although I've had two wines. I, I've had this a lot in, I've been fighting a cold. This is actually one of my foods when I have a cold. Is it? And, and Really uh, opens up the... Opens up the sinuses. Well, I think so, um, or maybe I just like it. It's yep. a comfort food, and yep. and uh, and I found two wines that I really liked with it. Um, okay, and though, good. Frankly, when you have a cold, probably shouldn't be drinking wine with. It. I wasn't drinking much. In any case, it's pesto pasta. Pesto pasta. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. So tell everyone what the ingredients are. Well, you've got your pesto, right? And you've got your pasta, right? It's no, basil. But, but it's basil, basil pine garlic, nuts, garlic, pine nut, right? I right. think it's the garlic probably that helps with the cold. It is. It's and it's also what gives it so much of its power. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And frankly, I, I did make a big batch of pesto over the weekend, and I put a ton of garlic in it. Yeah, I'll bet you did. So my people, wouldn't, they knocked on the door and then turned around and left. I, <laughs> and those were your neighbors. Those were, those were my wife, actually. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, so, no. so, but here's the, I have, I have two. If, if, if I may use both of mine, or would you rather No, no, you, you go ahead, and then I'll give you a, an idea of what I might do with this yeah, okay. as well. So, so, so I went in two different directions, sort of. Uh-huh. A Vermentino. Yeah. It's Italian. It's, a, it's, it's, you know, it's a clean... Sort of uh, um, uh, just the thing we like about Italian white sort of freshness to it, and I thought the uh-huh. freshness and the pesto went yep. really well. Yep. Plus, plus it's Italian, and it's Italian. You're having right? pasta, yeah, you're having pesto, pesto yeah. you're having vermentino. Yeah. You know, you start singing Italian opera in the background. Yeah, and the other were were California Sauvignon Blanc, sort of richer Sauvignon Blancs, uh-huh. and uh-huh. you know, it's a little bit of the uh, the you get the greenness of the Sauvignon Blanc and and, yep. and a little sharpness in the, yeah, but not a ton. And and I found both of them to go well. Now, once again, it may have been that my my uh, my taste and smell receptors were down a little bit, but I thought both of those went really well. Uh-huh. How many bottles of these did you drink? I had one of each each night okay. just to see how just it went. I told you went. I was cutting back. Right. Because... And, what, and, and actually, so that we can get a little better sense of this from a more reasonable palate, what did your <laughs> wife think of these combinations? Um, she actually really liked the Vermentino. The Vermentino. Yeah. She was yeah. not crazy about the Sauvignon Blanc, but she's not crazy about so She yeah. actually likes leaner, brighter Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah. Well, and, I, and, and of course, Sauvignon Blanc, you have that sort of that character that's a little grassiness, which maybe with the basil could... Could be a little too much. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. good. Well, see, she's a smart lady. Yeah, well, I don't not, know how she ended up smart. with you. She married me, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to go something different because you've got two white wines, and I think you can also drink red wine with this dish. I think you can. Um, and I would go with a lighter style red wine. One of my, I think, greatly underrated Italian red wines is Valpolicella. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, as you get closer up to Lake Garda, there is a wine similar style called Bardolino. You have to and explain that one to people. What's that? You have to explain that one. How think, so? What is it? What's the grape? Uh, the grape is Corvina, which is not grown in uh, the States much at all. It's a lighter, softer style grape. comes from the Veneto, the region of Italy around Venice. That's why it's called the Veneto. And it has sort of a nice black cherry character, but it's a lighter-bodied wine. Um, some Americans may know of this grape because it's the, this is the base wine from which they make Amarone which is a huge, powerful right. red wine. But this is the lighter, fresher, um, younger sister of Amarone. Light, fresh, delicious, um, has nice balance to it. And, you know, I often think that sometimes you just want a nice glass of red wine. This is a nice glass of red wine. It's not what they call in Italy a vino de meditazione, a meditation wine. It's not a wine that you're going to pour yourself a glass of, stare at stare at the fire for 45 minutes and remember what it was like when you used to be king. And go into hallucinatory and, uh, rapture. That's right. Yeah. This is just a wine that you might want to drink, for example, out of a glass with no stem because it's just a red wine. It's just a delicious, fresh red wine, and I think it would go kind of nicely with this dish. There is nothing wrong with a uh, delicious glass of red wine, I give it three stars. Three stars. Absolutely right. Yeah. And that is it for another round of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Our engineer is Matt Pacini. Thanks, stu- Matt. Uh, also an award-winning play, uh, a screenwriter. That's right, right. And thank you to Capital Public Radio for the studio use. If you'd like to ask us a question for our next show, we'll answer it. If you go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And look for us on iTunes. You can subscribe for free with just one little click. If you learned anything today, we hope it's that whatever you think of point scales, we rate a 100. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. Remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially with us. Especially with us.